Welcome to Teen People, the podcast where I track down people who were in Teen People magazine as young adults. Where are they now? Join me as I find out. I'm Anna Soper, and I'm a visual artist and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. This is the last episode of Season 2 of Teen People, and it's bittersweet because I'm sad this season is ending, but I'm also very excited because I'm talking with my first Canadian. Dr. Ben Berry is Dean of Fashion at Parsons School of Design in New York. When he was 14, Ben founded a modeling agency in his hometown of Ottawa, Canada's capital city. Realizing there was an untapped market for models of all sizes, Ben made a name for himself as an agent for models of all sizes. Ben's agency initially supplied models for the local newspaper, which quickly became his biggest champion. Then, Teen People gave him a call. In March 2001, they celebrated Ben on their annual list of teens who will change the world. This caught the attention of Oprah Winfrey, who featured the 18-year-old on her talk show. As an adult, Ben shifted into a career in fashion education. He has a BA from the University of Toronto and degrees from Cambridge University, where his PhD research demonstrated a business case for size diversity in fashion and beauty advertising. Over the past few years, Ben has worked at Ryerson University in Toronto, where he was chair of fashion and founding director of the Center for Fashion Diversity and Social Change. He remains an associate professor of equity, diversity, and inclusion in the School of Fashion at Ryerson. Two quick housekeeping notes before we begin. One, Ben and I talk about physical size in a way that might be sensitive for some, so please use your judgment on that. Secondly, since Ben and I spoke, Ryerson University has pledged to rename to reflect a commitment to decolonization and reconciliation. Ben spoke with me in the spring of 2021 from his country home not far from me, just west of Kingston. He was wearing a crescent moon print by Marine Serre, and I was in a thrifted leopard print turtleneck, very 60s. We both looked fabulous. Ben began by telling me how and why he founded the Ben Berry Agency. I think in many ways, because it was a time when there was no social media, I think as a teenager, there wasn't, I didn't feel what I would say is the same, maybe pressure around competition or seeing what other people were doing. Um, in many ways, I felt I lived in my own little bubble and within my own little bubble, I knew like my friends and what they were doing and like their families. Um, and I thought in many ways, like, anything could be possible, but I didn't have connections to this world. And so thinking as like running a modeling agency in Ottawa, I'm sure it would be totally different with social media today. But at that point, right, I was in my kind of little bubble and playing and exploring. And I think that there's like a bravery and an experimentation that really came from that. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about you founding the modeling agency because I watched a TED talk you gave in Toronto about that. And you had a friend who was trying to get representation. She was turned down. She was too big, they said. 
Yeah, I started, I mean, again, like speaking, there's no social media. I had no idea how the fashion industry worked. I didn't even know that there were really other modeling agencies in the world. I knew my friend wanted to be a model. She took a course, but all the other agencies in Ottawa said that she was too big and she was probably a size 14 or 16. And they said that to be a model, she needed to be a dress size, maybe four or six. Um, and that just wasn't healthy for her. And of course, not knowing anything about this world, I took her photos and I sent them to a local magazine um, with a note saying, I think this model would be fantastic. And if you're interested, you know, call me back. I put my phone number. I didn't think anything about it. I think I was in grade nine at the time. Um, and I ended up getting a phone call back from the editor of the magazine who hired my friend for a photo shoot, assumed that I was her agent. And I said, uh, yes, of course I'm her agent. And with that started like this modeling agency in my family's basement. Um, my friend said, I don't have to lose weight. I don't have to spend money on more courses. You've already gotten me a job. Couldn't you get me more? And I'm like, yeah, I could. The first one wasn't that hard to get to, so sure. And so it really just kind of jumped in and that became my like after school and summertime job. I loved that story about how they followed up with you once they got your photos or her photos and they phoned you as if you were her agent. And on the spot, you founded the Ben Berry Agency. Yeah, that was exactly how it happened. Like no planning, no kind of thinking about what this world would entail, but really, really wanting to help my friend and thinking that it made no sense to me that there was such restrictions around who could and who couldn't be a model. I also wonder whether the fact that there wasn't social media made it possible for you to hide your identity like that and to claim, yes, I am her agent. Yes, I am a professional. And um, whereas if they'd been able to Google you, they'd have seen that you were a 14 year old boy. Totally. They would have gone to my like Instagram or TikTok and they would have been like, yeah, I don't know. Because there was no social media, I didn't really know what was happening. Truthfully, like in the world outside of Ottawa, I think today, like it's so easy for kids, especially who are interested in fashion, right? To follow kind of the huge fashion brands, to follow the creatives, to follow the models. Um, and I didn't have that access. And so many, in many ways, it allowed me to think outside of kind of the dominant rules because I didn't know what they were. And so I could really kind of play and experiment and do, I think what I thought was the right thing to do. Eventually, uh, you booked a model for 17. And uh, when the magazine came out, you were showing the pictures around and your friends said things like, oh, well, I can't wear that. I could never wear that. Um, and you said that you realized that that spread was making your friends feel badly. All that mattered in that moment was that they didn't look like the model. Yeah, I think starting a modeling agency while being in high school, um, I think in many ways allowed me to center the impact that representation had. And really, I think so. E it's so easy to kind of write off representation that, you know, is it really like deep? Does it really make a difference? But when I think one, you don't see yourself represented ever, it is important. It's a, it's a privilege to say representation doesn't matter because it means you've often always been represented. And I think the second part is that 
especially at that time, we were not having the conversations we've had today around inclusion and diversity in fashion and particularly on the runway and in magazines. At that time, we really saw one narrow ideal of beauty. And I think being in high school, I saw the impact I was having on my friends, that comparison and that feeling not beautiful, not good enough, not confident enough because my, most of my friends didn't look like this dominant ideal. Um, and recognizing in many ways, right, that there was nothing wrong with like tall and thin models, but when that was the only ideal that was celebrated and that was it, that really had a dramatic impact on how people felt about their bodies and their confidence and their place in the world. And for context, that time was dominated by the 90s era supermodels and Naomi Campbell was really the only diverse face. Completely. I mean, this was a time where we did not see, right, it was kind of just pre kind of blog. Um, we didn't see sort of the fat fashion kind of revolution that really came from the blogging and moving to the Instagram sphere. Um, we were not having the same conversations we're having around race and fashion. And so we still primarily saw white models. Um, and maybe there was this sort of really significant tokenism, not that we don't know that today, but it was pretty significant um, back at that point where you're right, like it was Naomi Campbell, agencies might have one black model and then they thought they were diverse. And certainly there wasn't the conversation around um, gender identity and expression, there wasn't the conversation around disability um, and really the multiple access of identities that we're having today. So this was a time when fashion was based on really one ideal of beauty, that was not questioned. And if it was questioned, that was seen as a completely radical concept. Mm. And based on the feedback from your friends who saw that 17 spread and felt unhappy about themselves as a result, you decided to pivot rather than close your agency. You recruited body diverse models and it took off. Yeah, I mean, so much of that was recognizing that I didn't have to follow what the fashion industry was doing. I could do something different. And certainly it was about representing models across sizes and races and models with disabilities and ages, models that looked like my friends and their families. Um, and I think that's very much what I did. And again, because this was kind of pre-social media, um, there wasn't a feedback loop, I would say, where I was getting positive or like positive kind of comments or hate, right? This was like, my friends thought this was great. I was representing them. And in Ottawa, which is not a fashion capital, right? We were getting jobs in like local newspapers, magazines, uh, coordinating fashion shows for malls in the city. And so things were really starting to move and take off. You've described fashion in the past as operating on a hierarchical model. Uh, where there's a very narrow definition of who is included and who is valued. I wonder whether your agency not only anticipated the body diversity movement in fashion, but also the visual um, culture and technological context that we live in today, because anyone can post a really stunning look on Instagram or a thrift haul on TikTok or YouTube. Yeah, I mean, I think I think honestly, so much of the work that came out of the agency and like the community we were developing in Ottawa at that time was really based, I think, on like what 
my friends were saying in like that, like, like mid late nineties, very early two thousands. It was really based on what I was hearing, who, what they, who, their desire to see themselves. Um, and I think this like true ability that that could be possible working with photographers that again could create like these images that were opened. Um, there was just something really dynamic about feeling we were building something that hadn't been built before. But knowing that this wasn't just like a good business move, knowing this was real impact, because knowing how important the representation in fashion was, knowing the role fashion played and knowing that we were like modeling something, I think in Ottawa that could speak far beyond Ottawa, um, but that we were creating something that needed to happen. Mm, literally and metaphorically modeling something. What was the what was the response? When did it sort of kick off from a media perspective? When did you start getting acclaim for this work? I remember the very first article I had scheduled a meeting with the fashion editor at the Ottawa Citizen, the local newspaper in my hometown in Ottawa. And I went to the meeting to bring all the like portfolios and comp cards of our models um, to kind of do a presentation on the agency who we had um, because they hired models once a week for the fashion section. And I thought this would be a good client. Um, and I left not with them hiring a model yet, but instead I think with the editor being shocked that I was like a 15 year old coming in versus like a 45 or 35 year old and wanting to do a story on the agency. And I think that was the very first piece that once it came out, there was a bit of a domino effect that I think really happened in the nineties um where then like the local ctv station news picked it up and then a kind of domino to other media and they started to pay attention and the story was about a young modeling agent but i think that really provided provided an opening for our models to start to get jobs because then people would call and wanted to know about the agency um and it grew mm, so it was good pr as well yeah yeah and ways that again before social media i mean today right you could easily start an Instagram account, tell the narrative of your business, post photos of your models, tell those stories. But at that point, um, really it was TV, radio, newspapers was the only way to really share the message, especially when you're a young and new entrepreneur and you have no budget to spend on that kind of marketing, that it was an ideal, like an ideal way to like share what you're doing with a much larger audience. Mm, that's such a good point. And I'm also thinking about the media environment at that time, because you mentioned how you went to the Ottawa Citizen, spoke with their fashion editor, and then they hired models from your agency for a spread in the newspaper. Now, so much newspaper content is syndicated, and we don't have that local media. We don't have access to uh, people, people in editorial positions who can really advance our projects. Yeah, completely. I mean, I I don't even think there's probably a fashion editor anymore for the Ottawa Citizen. And they're certainly not doing weekly shoots at their studio. Um, but at that time, that was a big part, right? There was a fashion section that came out every Thursday. It was a standalone section with a cover that they hired a model, they did a fashion shoot, they wrote a story. It created a local fashion community that existed within the city and that was like critical to really building this concept and really growing the agency. An article would come out in the Ottawa Citizen and like 
we would get lots of up models, local like kind of photographers would call us. And I remember every Thursday when that fashion section came out, it would always say the model's name and then represented by Banbury Agency. And, you know, again, like 14, 15, 16, that was huge. I was so excited. I was like, okay, we made it. We're in the Ottawa Citizen. We're on the cover of the Thursday fashion section again. Like this was like I, the definition of like success for my business at that time. Do you still have a portfolio of these clippings and cuttings from the flyers and the newspapers? I do. I have um, not really a portfolio, but I have like a box filled of like clippings of our models that I've always kept and like little news stories and things that happen um, because those were all critical in like building that journey. And then eventually you had international attention too, because by 2001, you were on Oprah and you were in teen people as a teen who will change the world. Yeah, I feel like that came about with a phone call from an editor at Teen People who said, you know, we put together this annual review of teens, 20 teens will change the world. Um, and we'd like to feature you as one of the teens this year. Um, we're gonna mail you a package and an invitation. And part of that is we'll send a photographer, you'll have a profile and then we'll bring you um, and my mom at that point to New York for like this whole ceremony and like award recognition um, with the other teens. I had never been to New York. And so to be flown from Ottawa to New York, to be picked up in a car, to be brought to this really cool boutique hotel, it was so well organized. Um, like they sent you a really beautiful package. They picked you up. They had a dinner for you to meet the other teens and the editors that night when you arrived. Um, they brought you to teen people offices the next day and gave you a tour. You met the editors. Then they had a lunch and they presented each teen with an award and they had different people present, um, like present the award. And um, Todd Oldham, who's a fashion designer, um, was a big fashion designer at that time, presented me with the award. And then you had a chance to give a few words. Um, yeah, it was incredible and it was really cool because at that time when sort of the announcement came out that i was one of these teens um and i think i was probably the only canadian on the list um that same fashion editor who first did the story with me uh again local newspapers came to flew to new york to cover the event and do an article on me and i remember there's a photo in the newspaper of me at the event with I'm trying to remember his name, the artist who had the famous song, the thong song. Cisco. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> was one of the performers at the event. And like I had my picture taken with the and it was in the Ottawa Citizen and fashion television that Jeannie Becker hosted came down to like film the award ceremony. And I did a live patch in to our local CTV news from Teen People. So Ottawa was like super excited, which like and obviously the local media culture all followed it and picked it up and yeah, it was amazing. Hometown boy makes good. <laughs> I mean, it's I funny to that. think back now, but at that point it's like, you felt like really you felt that this was it. Like as a teen, like, I mean, it's an, like incredible to get that honor, but then when there's so much community support and I think 
especially for my business, like none of that would have happened without that community support from day one. It was always so successful to me for like, not just to growing the, the business, but for people believing in the concept, like pushing an idea of models that was so counter to what everyone else was doing, but having a community that was like, yes, we believe in this. We think this is important. This needs to happen. And we're gonna quote, take the risk, whatever that meant. We're gonna hire your models. We're gonna feature you on the news. We're gonna create dialogue and exposure for you. It was because of that community support that this even happened. So then going to New York for team people and having kind of that extended support, I think it's just really heartwarming and it makes you value, like it really, I think, just makes you value like the role of community um, when you're doing anything in life. Did it ever make you feel anxious that you maybe you had reached the pinnacle and where were you going to go from there? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think going to New York for teen people and talking to people there and meeting the other teens and again, not having Facebook or Instagram at that time. I think it showed me this big world that I knew existed, but I didn't know existed. And so I was, I think it, I think that Teen People Award was really pivotal because I think in many ways it was like, oh wow, there's this huge world and there's interest in this idea and there's openness to challenging these ideas of beauty that fashion has promoted. And it's not just in Ottawa, you know, people in New York were interested in this. And so I think in very much of anything, it just like, that was like, wow, there's so many paths that can be taken um, that Ottawa, like my work in Ottawa started and my experience in Ottawa started, but I think it showed me that you could just continue. And so I don't think it made me, if anything, it didn't make me feel like I kind of reached a peak. It just made me realize how big the world was. And I never had thought of that before. That's interesting because I've talked with some people who were in 20 teens who will change the world and they realized afterwards it put a lot of pressure on them and they felt sort of, how am I going to live up to this? What am I going to do next? What could I ever do that would change the world? That's so interesting. I think for me, it, it, it exposed me to the world. I don't think I thought of the world outside of Ottawa until I went to New York and I was like, oh, it's so big and there's so much and like, there's so many possibilities. And I think it, it was obviously a huge honor, but it was also just really eye-opening um, in terms of the work that still needed to be done. I feel like that was like, it was like, wow, like this is only the beginning. Mm, that's such a nice spirit to sort of leave your teens with and go off to university with. What happened um, after that point? How long did the agency ultimately run for? So I ran the agency up until 2012. So for a very long time, I eventually moved the agency to Toronto, um, which was a much bigger city um, when I went to undergrad. And then I continued, I continued it. Um, it sort of then fueled all the work I was doing in university where I moved to do, I continued on um, I studied women's studies, which really in undergrad gave me such an important understanding of intersectionality, of understanding, I think, inclusion in a much more systemic way than I had looked at before, um, in understanding really how to like read images. Um, and it's not just the bodies in them, but it's the poses, it's like everything else. And eventually leading to uh, a PhD where I wanted to actually look at 
do diverse models, not just make it social sense, but make it business sense. Sort of, again, what I saw in Ottawa, what I heard informally from companies who are hiring our models, but that there was no research. So using models who reflected uh, wearers and consumers, what, what impact did that have on brand loyalty, on purchase intentions, um, and on body image? And could we actually study that to have a really compelling case? And so that's really what I looked at. Um, and then in 2012, I had kind of ran my business for like 15 years. Um, and I was like, this is really fun. But again, thinking more about change, I was like, models are a small part of like this whole system of fashion and beauty. And so much of it isn't just who's represented, but who is making those decisions, right? What bodies are in the room? What bodies aren't in the room? What are the worldviews and frameworks that like creatives are even have to make those decisions? And so that kind of drove me to kind of move to education where, and I got a job, a tenure track job um, as a assistant professor in fashion at Ryerson. And I tried for that first semester to run my business um, with my colleagues and my staff and be a full-time like prof. And I was like, oh, this is like not going to happen. There's no balance. Um, and I think I was ready for a change. So at that point it was sort of like, okay, the industry had also changed where all the other agencies started at least to represent more diverse models or had divisions. Um, and so we were able to kind of place our models with other agencies, kind of set everything up. And then I was able to kind of transition into academia full-time that's awesome yeah you'd sort of done your work you had changed that world in a sense and um and there's also there's a time and a season for all of our different projects i'm so impressed that you were um that you maintained your your work with the benberry agency while you were doing your undergrad that sounds really intense yeah it was intense i mean it was intense i think again because i was able to start like way before that um when i started in undergrad like we were able to hire a staff so it wasn't just me so while i was in university right the agency had grown um we were able to have like two three four eventually ten staff that were there and so that like yes it provided work but it also gave me a lot of I think freedom and flexibility to be able to stay in school and work. And so again, like starting kind of that young without knowing was provided a foundation that allowed me to continue kind of to bring those two worlds together. You're just about to leave Ryerson and go back to New York and start a, a new position at Parsons. Can you tell me about that? And also tell me what you're most proud of in your time at Ryerson like a teen people like full circle moment like huge you know, seeing like the world in new york and be like wow i've never been here before this is so huge and there's so much um and now thinking about you know going back in like a full-time role there is kind of like yeah i think of that a lot actually so at ryerson I've, I've been a faculty member um and then three years ago i became chair of the school of fashion and one of the things um, that we've done and that I think I'm the most proud of is really working with my colleagues to really introduce three guiding principles that the community define. So inclusion, decolonization, and sustainability, and that these would be the core of our curriculum and our culture. And so over the three years, there's been really intentional hiring um, to bring in faculty members who are underrepresented, um, to ensure that they have full-time roles and that there's knowledge brought into the institution um, that they have and to change fashion curriculum 
to center conversations around um, fashion and race, uh, indigenous fashion history, uh, size inclusion and fat fashion, disability and crip fashion. Um, again, really teaching students about histories, about worldviews, about practices to make fashion more inclusive. And it's a big journey because it's still just starting, but we've really started to put that into practice. And I think that very much is that experience um, and that work that we've done is what um, I'm going to be bringing to Parsons when I go there, because it's also a school that has sort of started this journey around inclusion in fashion and is looking to push that forward. And so my role there will be to be Dean of their fashion program and to work with them and the colleagues and students and alumni to really center a new way of practicing fashion that is um, inclusive in a really like deep and systemic way. Recognizing that again, like when I was 14 and 15 and I was like, oh, these models on the runway in the magazines don't look like my friends and families, that that representation doesn't just appear, but there are people who are making decisions about what size clothing should be, how clothing is gendered, people taking photos that decide who's cast in the photos, how people should be look in those photos, right? There is a whole group of people intentionally, deliberately, consciously and not making those decisions. And so what I really hope to do is I think work with everyone to bring in like frameworks and worldviews and histories and narratives that are grounded in social justice. Um, so fashion is operating from that premise. And then also we are working intentionally to reduce barriers, uh, both for faculty members, but also barriers for students. So when we look at who those creatives are, that we are seeing creatives from a wide range of communities who, whose communities aren't just being appropriated by the fashion industry, but who are sharing their knowledge and also getting the degrees, the credit, the pay, the profit, all of that. Um, because then we really will see an inclusive fashion industry. We'll see sizing that is diverse. We'll see challenges around binaries. We'll see much less cultural appropriation. Um, sort of all of these issues that fashion has, right? So much is about how designers and creatives and business people are educated and what bodies are in that room. So it's really working intentionally to change that because fashion education is the gateway into industry. And in many ways, it sets the foundation for how people are going to operate in the industry. Mm -hmm. I talked with um, someone who was a Teen People intern, and she's now a creative director. Her name is Diana Maciel. And um, she, was, she was telling me that, that when she worked for some more luxury brands, it was very hard for her to make a case uh, for more diversity in the models that they were casting. And um she has found working with brands like forever 21 there's uh much more acceptance in that corporate culture for people with different backgrounds and for people with different sizes as well um and so i i, I just think about this this concept of the fashion industry operating on these different planes depending on whether it's ready to wear or fast fashion or whether it's couture uh, and it sounds like you're looking to really reshape every sphere in the fashion industry. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are, I mean, 
the hierarchy in fashion is certainly one thing that needs to be destabilized. And there's certainly been this, I think, very real practice where inclusion can be introduced at what they would say mass market or something that's more accessible. But as soon as you get to luxury fashion, because they play on the concept of exclusivity, um, that having quote inclusive ideas of beauty would challenge that very premise of exclusive. I mean, what I found in my PhD research was that that is anything but true. Um, what really brings that quote exclusivity or that luxury has nothing to do um, with sort of whose body is in the ad or on the runway or what size the clothing is. It's really the craft, the artistry, uh, that's put into the clothing and the design and the images and the show, right? It's really telling those rich narratives and really that time and craft and artistry that makes something luxury. And that, that obviously it's most known in say like European fashion within dominant culture, but that luxury fashion is something that indigenous cultures have been practicing since time immemorial. Um, and there's nothing exclusive exclusively luxury about European fashion that cultures all over the world don't also have. So I think it's also really working to challenge um, that false narrative that like the West and Paris and New York own fashion or the originators of fashion and really like immediately destabilizing and decentering that. Um, because then we start to see that inclusion really has been happening in fashion and luxury fashion, again, since the very beginning. We just need to like really shift and challenge that frame and bring in this new paradigm into dominant society. <laughs> We're both collapsing into giggles because there's a dog. Sorry, there's my dog. I'll just let him. What's your dog's name? His name is Apple. Oh. The best thing. I mean, he will be adjusted. He'll have to get adjusted to New York. My husband and I, we decided to get a place outside of Toronto, thinking that this pandemic would continue for a while, and it has. And so we've been here for a year now. Mm, I'm noticing the architectural details behind you. So I figured you probably weren't in Toronto. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely like the uh, house built in 1900 uh, yes. <laughs> in rural Ontario, which I love. And it's been really regenerating. I do think Canada has been critical. I think that in many ways, my agency, the work we've done at Ryerson couldn't have happened in any other place. Um, I think because again, in fashion, this is not just like Ottawa isn't a fashion quote capital. Um, you don't think of all, you don't think of Canada and fashion internationally. Um, and I think that that has provided a real pathway to be able to play and experiment and like create this new paradigm because there's not that same pressure that an industry would normally put on a center where fashion is so critical to the social, economic and cultural fabric. Um, and so because we don't have that same pressure, there's been a way to really say, well, what is fashion? And let's actually challenge that very definition of what fashion is. And that allows us to immediately, for example, in Canada, right, immediately connect it to um, indigenous fashion that has existed since time immemorial immediately question, you know, what is in a fashionable body and what does that look like? Um, and I think those same ideas that I kind of were, had the freedom to play with because I was on Ottawa as like a fashion educator, there's been that same freedom to play with within kind of the academic and teaching context of fashion. That's awesome. So I love that you're going to bring that Canadian context to New York and to, to Parsons. 
Yeah, I mean, that's my plan. I mean, I think it's like I've learned so much from being here and from people here and from like my upbringing here. And I think very much that shaped who I am. Um, it shaped my perspective. It continues to shape my perspective. And that's definitely something that I want to bring. I think particularly around the work we've done at Ryerson um, and that's happening in Canada around this really incredible growth around Indigenous fashion resurgence um, and really recognizing that the history of fashion is so much longer um, than sort of dominant fashion courses, history, culture has like truthfully recognized. And I think bringing that narrative and bringing that history is going to be really important to build those relationships that have started to happen here. And I think that's just one example, but I think that there's a lot that will go to New York from Canada and hopefully relationships will be built between Ryerson and Parsons um, and it will all continue. Um, and I'm excited, I'm excited by the conversations happening now because I think five years ago we had a conversation where it was like, well, quote, like fat fashion or plus size fashion was fashion up, you know, if you designed up to a size 18 or 20, that was seen as like inclusive. And I think we're at a point today where it's like, well, no, that's not enough, um, right? Like you have to go beyond a size like 20, you have to go beyond a size 26. You have to really be inclusive to really think about the diversity of bodies that exist. And I think that conversation, right? So much of that conversation is because of social media to come back to that. And to so many people who had not seen themselves represented now occupying spaces socially, like on virtually, showing their bodies, sharing their experiences with fashion um, that puts pressure on the industry and certainly inspires dialogues for change in a way that we didn't see 15, 20 years ago. And I think that that's really encouraging in terms of the changes that can and will happen and that have happened. I talked with Zena Burns, who was the entertainment director at Teen People for quite a while. She um, she was there for almost the entire run of Teen People from 98-ish to 2006. And she told me that they were really interested in diversity and inclusion in the magazine. It didn't really hit me until I talked with her that actually Teen People didn't hire models. They didn't go to agencies and cast models and book thin, beautiful types. Um, they would go to shopping malls and host an event with the local radio station and then sign kids up there. Uh, they even scouted, I talked with one woman who was 13, I think she was 13, which is like really young. She was on the playground and she was scouted by someone at Teen People, which sounds really, really suspicious, um, but she was so thrilled at the time. Um, and it is true when you look through Teen People, all of the models our ordinary kids like Jessica from New Jersey. And I think that it's interesting hearing your story about Seventeen magazine and how they hired a model that you represented, uh, whereas Teen People was really bucking that trend, not hiring models at all, but casting their own readers in the magazine. Yeah, it's so, and I think that that's really, I don't think those, um, those movements and those like kind of interventions into how fashion worked probably got the credit that they deserved at that time. I know that like obviously one of sort of the big changes in the industry is when in 2005, um, the Dove campaign Real Beauty was launched, the Dove campaign for Real Beauty. And that really was seen as, oh, they're using quote, real women. This is like a change for diversity. This is a big movement. But I think like, 
places like Teen People, right, created those paths before, but I think because maybe they weren't seen as a fashion or beauty brand, they were seen as like a more entertainment brand, maybe that that work went under the radar or went less acknowledged. Um, but I think that those, that was really paving the way, I think, in terms of fueling that conversation. There were obviously decision makers around that time who were like, hey, you know, if we just cast models, our readers won't see themselves. Is this really reflecting them? Let's create a fashion editorial that's a little bit different. Just thinking back to your teenage self founding that agency, handling the acclaim that you were getting locally, nationally, and internationally, what advice would you give your teenage self today? I think the best advice would be to continue to always remain humble, know you don't know, and to listen. I think at the very beginning, I knew nothing about fashion. I didn't really know around standards of beauty, but I listened to my friends and their lived experiences. And I trusted that, I believed that, and I used that to guide me and that always continued to guide me. Um, and that I hope in the work I've done and I continue to do, it's knowing that you don't know the answers, but it's about trusting people whose lived experiences are different from yours um, and that trust you enough to share their experience and honoring that by letting that guide you. Because I think, I mean, I didn't, but I think I could have hypothetically always said at that point, well, I don't really get how you're feeling, especially like about models, or I think these models are fine, or this isn't really an issue, or like, right, there could have been like a disbelief or not really letting it sink in. But I think um, I was like, no, this is real. I see how you're impacted by this and this isn't right. And like, I want to listen to that. Um, and I don't really understand what this means, but like share with me what this means and let's talk about it and let's do this together. Like, let me represent you and like, let's collaboratively make this change. And I think um, like, I mean, I don't think I've really thought of this or said this, but I think I'm happy and proud that I like just trusted that and listened to that. And I like really just believe that lived experience. I had no reason not to, but it's so easy in our world um, to distrust or like challenge or question, or like, especially if something goes against what the world tells you is the way to do something or the world tells you is right or the world tells you is like accepted. Um, and recognizing that my friend's experience were challenging the world and challenging those dominant norms but trusting them versus the world, I would say always listen to that. Like always question what the dominant kind of culture, society or rules or supposed rules, like say how things are supposed to work and listen to that lived experience of folks who um, are challenging that and let that like collaborate with them and use that to kind of world make and make change. And I think it requires like a constant need just to like, remain humble, to listen, to not occupy a ton of space and to think about like what you can do, like to think for me, what I can do to kind of help facilitate that. I think I'm proud of my teenage self for doing that. And I hope I've continued to do that. And that's something I would want, like, you know, however many years later, like adult Ben to always like carry with him. How do you hope to change the world? I think I hope to change the world the same way I did when I was 14 and when I was in Teen People. I hope to dramatically challenge and change the fashion industry. So it's a place that truly does 
honor and respect and celebrate all bodies and ways of being in the world. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. No, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking me back on this journey. Yeah, it's a privilege to be able to reflect. I think this is a kind of a pivotal time in, in my life as I think about this transition to New York. And I appreciate having just the space to reflect on like the first time I was in New York um, and what that meant. So thank you. In the March 2001 issue of Teen People, Ben was featured on a list of world-changing teenagers that included the now legendary athlete Serena Williams. She told the magazine, people have to want to change from their hearts. In that same Teen People feature, Ben said, I want to change the face of fashion. Clearly, Ben wants that with all his heart. It's his life's work, literally the thing he's been doing since childhood. Thanks to Ben for doing that work and for sharing your story with me. That's it for season two of Teen People. If you haven't listened to my other interviews, please do. You can find Teen People on my website, annasoper.ca, or on your favorite podcast app. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this show, so please get in touch or leave a rating or review. I'm Anna Soper. Thank you for listening to Teen People. Until next time.